Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to episode eight of Scaling Your Business. This episode, I'm thrilled to have uh, a colleague of mine, Nima, uh, hailing all the way from Washington, D.C. And uh, yeah, Nima, you're very welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, delighted to have you. And I'm really delighted to have you because uh, I want to park the leadership for organizational topics to the side for a moment. I know we'll do a little deep dive on lead generation, sharing your vision, but there's a lot around storytelling uh, and what got you into Sandler. And I really think this this episode uh, is going to be slightly different than the rest. So first question I have for you is why Sandler? It's not the easiest business in the world. You're trying to sell something that a lot of people don't necessarily need. Uh, and you had a you had a successful corporate life. Why not stick with the benefits of that? So I, I think it's a great question. There's probably two sides of that question. The, the first is the fact that, um, you know, I mean, a long time ago, I, I had a, a mentor, I still have a mentor, um, who basically said, well, Nima, you're an entrepreneur, that's your mindset, so you're unhirable. Um, and, and I think he's probably right. Um, and so, yeah, comfortable corporate life, spent a good amount of years in medical device sales, was a great, great uh, living, very lucrative and all that. I, I, I do think, and whether it's the assessment tools that we use as Sandler trainers, and they have this part of the assessment tool that, you know, whether it's uh, authoritative relations or, you know, orientation around authority. I, and I, I always call it very, I call it very low on those. I always did, you know, a- ambition, creativity, expressiveness, all that stuff is very high. But the part that basically says like, are you going to be a great corporate citizen and be fulfilled for the next 20 years of your life? It's always been like a two out of a hundred. Um, and so I probably already knew that about myself. Uh, I think that when you're a territory manager in medical device sales, you do get a lot of autonomy. You know, when I was in, I was covering half of California and I had a great district manager and he gave me a lot of freedom. So that entrepreneurial spirit served me very well in a territory management perspective. Then you get to a point in time like, all right, well, you know what? Uh, If I'm going to take a bet on something, I want to bet on myself. Uh, I, I, I don't want someone having to have been promoted or leave for me to be able to get promoted in a, in a career path in the traditional fashion. But ultimately, I, I just didn't think, I, I, I really, um, I don't like the word envy. I feel like that's a kind of a, a little bit of, a, of a, a negative connotation, but let's just say envy. Um, I, I do envy people who can be a corporate citizen for 30 years. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I wish I had that. It just hasn't really ever been me. Um, another question is why Sandler? It's spot on. I mean, even um, even to this day, uh, as a, as a little bit of a joke, I'll I'll kind of say, you know, someone say, "Hey, is Sandler a franchise model?" And I'll say, "Yeah, Sandler's a franchise model with none of the benefits." Uh, and, and I I obviously I'm kidding, Dave. You're watching. I'm kidding. Um, but I do make the point. I'm like, when I think of a franchise, I think of uh, Dunkin' Donuts or Five Guys Burgers or Subway. Uh, no one has ever driven by my office and said, you know what I can go for right now? Some sales training. It's, it's, it's a licensing model. And so, um, you know, and it's, and it's, it's, I think I have the best job in the world. And I know you feel the same way. Um, we, we really are able to do well for ourselves while doing good. 
We are changing people's lives. We're helping them not just grow their business and get the capital uh, and financial successes that come from that, but a lot of times it's you're helping the you know five, ten, fifteen million dollar and above, um, you know sometimes even less than that uh, executive, and really the benefit for them, yes, it's monetarily, but really it gets down to that personal impact and they just want to spend more time with their kids. They want to coach their kids' soccer team and they can't. And that's actually life-changing. So um, I, I think I kind of answered both. Why did I leave corporate life? I was not a pretty good corporate citizen despite my success, living in failed. And why Sandler? Because I, I believe in it. I actually had applied the concepts. I'd matched the methodology to other processes. Uh, I know this won't really resonate with you because uh, of the cultural difference, but when I was a kid, there was these commercials for Remington razors, uh, mm -hmm. like electric razors. And the guy said, you know, I love the product so much I bought the company. Um, and, and I think that was more the origin. I, 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 why say that? Because I'd used it uh, and it worked. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, well, may as well go and do it because I already had the belief in it. When you say you used it, I'm assuming you're, you're meaning that you've brought it into companies prior to going out by yourself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I, and I don't think that part of my origin story is that unique. I would say um, there are people who just, you know, go and launch into, into Sandler um, for, their, for different reasons. But I, I would say, and maybe you know more about this than I do, I would say probably the two most common paths to becoming a Sandler a training company owner, in my case, owning precision sales consulting is you uh, either had worked with, uh, for another Sandler training company owner or you yourself were a client. Um, and so I was kind of the latter there. I, 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 uh, I had um, uh, worked with a Sandler trainer, um, shout out to uh, Rob Fishman and Rich Isaac in, uh, on Long Island, New York. So yeah, uh, for you know, a, a, a brief period of time, uh, they were my Sandler trainers. So yeah, I, I did bring in the concepts into a different business prior to uh, to doing it on my own. Pausing on that for a moment, I'd probably say I'd also rank myself two out of 10 suited to corporate life. I spent a little bit of time there. Uh, didn't like it at all. I love the life now. The life, you, you mentioned the, the changes, the impact that we make. The big one for me is the win moments. When you get the emails or at the start or end of the class where you go through wins and people tell you that, that for me, it puts a smile on my face and can make my whole week when I, when, when I, when I get those. I got one this morning and it's, I've been smiling since. So one of the things uh, that I want to talk today about was on a previous podcast that you were on, I listened to, you said that uh, you were hesitant to, or you were, you'd had made up excuses around publishing content, creating content, and really putting yourself out there on the digital side of things. But when COVID hit, you were kind of forced to do it. And you came together with what you call a wolf pack. Those outside of Sandler won't know the other three members, um, but you're all absolute rock stars. And over a five to six week period, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, was it 6,000, 6,500 people joined sessions? You want to talk me through, like, one, what have you seen difference-wise, if any, from when you weren't posting content on a regular basis to now having gone through that six week period of 6,500 people from any leads generated to confidence. I know you're big on it. We're going to talk a, bit, a, little, a little, bit, little bit later about getting outside of your comfort zone, but what did you get out of that? 
Yeah, so there's, 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 there's probably two parts to that. The, the, the first, which, I'll, which I'll, I'll, I'll talk about first, is that whole wolf pack thing, the start your days with Sandler piece. So I'll kind of walk you through that. Um, another part was, was your question around um, my reluctance to record content prior to this being forced into it. Uh, so I, I would say the, the start your days with Sandler, which was the daily webinar series that uh, Matt Nettleton, Robin Green, Sean Coyle and myself ran from roughly um, March 18th. Well, I can tell you exactly March 18th because remember it being uh, St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, and then I think Wednesday, uh, March. If I played to you for work and on the 18th, I would have been hungover. Not gonna lie. <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, had the world not been shut down, I probably would have as well. Um, and uh, but yeah, uh, so pretty much in the six-week period thereafter, every day, Monday through Friday. For an hour, uh, Robin, Sean, Matt, uh, and or me, we kind of split up the work a little bit, would do a, a session on, on sales, uh, on leadership, on management. And so I, I think there's a few sides to it. The, the, the first side is, is the mindset. I really think that, uh, and obviously tons of credit to my, to my team members here, uh, Robin, Sean, and Matt on this, is I think at that time, everyone was, was understandably fearful, very, very afraid, and, and why wouldn't they be? The world has really, really gotten smaller for them, literally in, 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 in quarantine and, and, and all that. Um, and also from mindset shift, I think a lot of times people were trying to do less. They were doing, trying to do less with their resources. Budgets were, were, were constraining. No one knew what was going yet with the, with the financial impact and all that. And at that time, we kind of said, okay, well, we have something that people benefit from. And why not do more? Because we were already running our ongoing training programs, and what, like, what were we, what were we really going to do during that one hour per day in the morning, Monday through Friday, if we weren't going to add more value and more content? So I think that the mindset was a lot of times people were kind of going away um, from you know doing things. We actually did more. Um, I think the or origination of the idea is pretty interesting because what happened was the reason why I remember these dates so well is because. Um, uh, so where I'm at, technically in Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C., um, well, Friday the 13th, Friday, March 13th, um, Maryland shut down. They announced we're going to go into the, the lockdown. And then that Monday thereafter, the 16th, is when Northern Virginia said, now we're going to go into shutdown. So uh, Matt Nettleton and I had a phone call either that 12th or the 13th, uh, that Thursday or Friday, and I, I called Matt and I was like, hey, Matt, listen, um, I'm getting set to train my in-person normal sales mastery group, my Tuesday morning session, um, and we might be shut down. We don't know yet. And I was like, hey, Matt, are you okay if I have my clients zoom in to your sales mastery class? He's like, sure, no problem. Invite them in. And that's kind of the generosity of spirit that I think exists in Sandler is literally, I, I didn't know whether we'd be able to do in-person or not. Um, I, fortunately I was set up to do it, but I hadn't really made that plan yet. So I called Matt and Matt's like, no problem. Here's the zoom link. If, if, if they want to attend, have them attend. And lo and behold, it happens the next day, shut down, Monday, shut down Tuesday. We were no longer doing in person and all my, my clients that were be in person sales mastery zoomed in to Matt Nettleton's sales mastery class. They loved it. And then from there, it was pretty quick. Uh, from there it was you know, Matt having a conversation with Sean, you know, having a conversation with Rob. And, and then we just, 
even the title, I mean, if we had more time, we would have come up with a, with a better title. Literally, it's start your days with Sandler. Like, yeah, that's that's good enough. Cause we that, and that I think is the lesson. We didn't know what we did. What we we didn't know enough to overthink it. <laughs> like yeah, just, that's that's the best. Sometimes you know, just get started. That, which I think is is their lesson. So what that was, as I said, six weeks. Um, we were usually all on there together, but once you know, if it was a Monday or Tuesday, it might have been Matt and Sean, and then I would take a Wednesday and so on. We were on all, all there, and we had a ton of people attend. I mean, it, over, like I said, over 6,000, I think it was 6,500 people attended over the course of a six-week period of time. Wow. They literally started their day with Sandler. And in a very kind of meta sense of what Sandler is, you know, the behavior, attitude, and technique, well, we became part of their behavioral plan for six weeks. They were literally starting their day with Sandler. So not only, I hope we're providing value, we were like, to use that, um, that James Clear habit stacking you know, idea. Like we, we were that thing that they would do with their coffee in hand at 8 a.m. Eastern time, they would start their day with, with Sandler. So we became part of the routine, which probably also impacted why the attendance was so great. And the other part, which I guess is gonna, is gonna uh, relate to your question. Um, I think that a lot of times, and myself included, have analysis paralysis around an idea. We wait for it to be perfect. And we think, well, if I can't do it perfectly, I best not do it, you know, such that I'll fall flat on my face. And the thing that I've, I've always thought of, I, I think I didn't realize I had it in my head until recently, um, but the, uh, I, I think it was Reed Hoffman, uh, uh, founder of, of LinkedIn, co-founder of LinkedIn. And he had this quote um, that if you're not embarrassed by the first iteration of your product, you waited too long to release it. Um, and, and I thought that was pretty cool. So, so both with Star Wars Sandler, we literally put the, the, the thing on the calendar and sent out emails, invited our clients, and the very next day, we were doing it. And then we just didn't stop. Um, and then on the content side, for, for, for me, um, I, I think the biggest mindset shift for me is I've probably been spending three, four years in Sandler, despite the fact that I've been having success. I'd spent a lot of time not being myself. Um, I was being a different version of me. I was being, I was trying my best to be, to be one of my mentors instead of, of being the version of me. And so one of the Sandler rules they talk about uh, really for Sandler trainers is, is be a product of the product. Uh, and what that means really in the shorthand is don't be a hypocrite. If you're going to do something, teach something, then embody it. The, the, the part that I think is, is refined for me and for everyone else is be a product of the product while still being yourself and leveraging your unfair advantage. So what I started to do, because I had no choice, um, is like, all right, well, I, I love this content. Um, I have a silly side to me. The world needs to laugh a little bit. We need permission to laugh. This was March, April, May. And so I kind of just started doing these um, almost slightly more serious versions of like between two ferns you know zach galifianakis like that whole thing yeah uh, having fun yeah and so um and from there i mean people start to really really enjoy them and and i invited all people in sandler to, to be a part of it um and uh and yeah so i, I think the the the, the lesson or, or how it impacted me uh, and I, I didn't really plan it this way but then once i saw there was traction i mean i, I would say that the content creation um the the what we used to call passive prospecting or, or, or brand building um, has been become a massive part of my business now. 
you, you mentioned the Wolfpack. They're reuniting in a couple of weeks' time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and I don't know when this uh, when, when this episode will will post, but uh, but yeah, uh, uh, February fourth. So that's gonna be next Thursday. T- today is uh, the twenty second of January. So yeah, next Thursday or sorry, two Thursdays from now. My, my mistake. Two Thursdays from now, eight a.m. Eastern time. Um, yeah, we have our reunion show, uh, building momentum for twenty twenty one. So we're really excited about that. Awesome. Well, it'll be one Thursday from now by the time this goes out. So it'll be next Thursday as you're listening to this. One of the things you mentioned was you, uh, waiting for perfection. And um, I think one of the other things is that people have fear. Uh, and you, get, you talk about this great story. They're, they're, they're fearful of failing. They don't want to be seen as taking on something that fails and then it's their problem. One of the things you talk about when it comes to fear is this great story. I'm hoping you can share with me from Band of Brothers. <laughs> well, yeah. I, so Band of Brothers, for those who haven't seen the original Band of Brothers, the 10-part miniseries, I, I think it's the best, probably the best. It's my favorite thing ever made, uh, the original one. And, um, and, and there's a scene with uh, Private Blythe is the, is the kid's name. And, uh, you know, kind of this shy, meek person, soldier. This is only a couple days after D-Day. And um, it's kind of after, you know, it's like after dark. And uh, Lieutenant Spears, who's this kind of hard-nosed uh, lieutenant, is walking by and, and starts a conversation with, with, with Private Blythe. And Private Blythe says to Lieutenant Spears, he says, you know, when I landed, when my parachute landed, I just found a hole and just crawled into it. I just sat there and, and, and I couldn't move. And then uh, Lieutenant Spears says, uh, says, son, do you, do you want to know why you, you know, crawled in that hole and didn't move? And then Blythe says, because I was scared. And Spears says, son, we're all scared. You crawled in that hole because you still have hope. And it's such a pattern interrupt. And, and so he's like, he's like, he's like, you know, and I'm not getting the quote right, obviously, just going off memory, but uh, Spears says, you know, um, the, the best way for you to function the way a soldier needs to function is to abandon hope and accept the fact that you're already dead. <laughs> and once you, and once you accept that, you can operate the way a soldier, <laughs> soldier needs to. Um, and it's just this amazing little story there. And I mean, uh, and yeah, anyway, so I, I'm sure, Reen, there was a reason why you asked me about that story. Yeah, there is. Uh, it was leading me into getting outside of your comfort zone. Um, and you mentioned to me pre to coming on this podcast that uh, stand-up comedy, getting outside of your comfort zone, uh, uh, there's nothing that's done more for your business than that. That's a big statement. Can you talk me through why or how you think that stand-up comedy has there, – there's nothing that's done more for your business than stand-up comedy? Yeah, and, and, and I, I'm happy to. I, I, should, I should probably share the fact that I, I've actually only done stand-up comedy twice. It just so happens to be that the, tw- the twice that I did it were in front of some pretty massive venues uh, or massive as far as the, the – um, the regality and the history there. So Caroline's on Broadway, uh, world oh. famous Caroline's on Broadway oh. is the, was the very first place I did stand up comedy. And, and I did it through a program called CEO Stand Up. Uh, it was run by a friend of mine uh, named Matt Kazam, still out there, still doing it uh, virtually, obviously in the days of COVID, but awesome guy. 
uh, stand, uh, stand up, um, uh, sorry, CEO stand up, Matt Kazam. So big shout out to Matt. Um, but as far as, uh, I, I think there's a mindset piece and there's also the, the business piece to it. Um, so for me, and I probably said this in the comedy, I probably even said it in uh, a talk or two I've done for, for, for Sandler, um, but it's kind of strange that I'm now in a business that's effectively a public speaking company. Um, I grew up with a terrible stutter. I mean, terrible. Uh, it was really bad for, you know, from the time I was seven or eight years old, all the way really through much of high school, um, it was a pretty bad stutter. It got better. Um, and so it's weird because you think about the stories we, we tell ourselves, the stories that are told to us. And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm doing a little shtick here because it works well for me. The stories were told, you know, first generation Iranian American. I'm supposed to be a doctor. Instead, I go and become a sales guy and my family is waiting for me to get a real job one day. You know, um, so there's that's like a life script that's imposed upon us sometimes. And some people feel that some people don't. But I think that many of us, the classic immigration story, first generation story, it doesn't matter whether you're Iranian or you're Iraqi or you're Vietnamese or there's there's there's, some, there's something about the expectations thrust upon you when you're first generation. And that is largely because the, the family has suffered and, and struggled and, and, and paid an expense to get you to a place where they want you to have more than what you what than what you than what they themselves had. And so it's almost like a don't waste this opportunity thing. Now, I think every parent wants that for their, their child. There's something about the immigration story where, you know, there's that expectation upon you. That's like a story that's told to us, what you're, what you're supposed to be. And there's stories you tell ourselves. Uh, and so an example of that is here I am as a terrible stutterer, um, doesn't want to raise my hand in class, um, you know, tried to fake that I didn't speak English for, you know, eight years, uh, but that didn't work. Um, and then all of a sudden, here I am, and uh, I might not be the best public speaker, but it's a, lar- it's a large part of what I get paid to do. So bringing all that back um, to the point as to how this whole thing with stand-up comedy, um, or in general, you know, is, is an impact on my business and probably me personally, is because um, I've always enjoyed comedy, uh, really because I've always enjoyed storytelling. Um, and actually, I credit Sean Coyle for this, I believe. Uh, but I had a conversation with Sean Coyle, member of the you know, rock star, world famous Sandler trainer, and also one of the people I mentioned that we did a webinar series with. And I think about four or so years ago, I was talking with Sean uh, and, and, and I don't know, somehow we got on the topic of stories. And Sean said, you know, if you wanna really get a, become a great storyteller, um, watch a stand-up comic. And I was like, tell me more. He's like, because no stand-up comic has a 60 minute set. They have 12 five-minute sets, um, and, and, and it, it makes a ton of sense, right? Because if you, uh, you know, back in the, in the heyday, the golden age of late-night uh, talk show, which maybe we're back into that now. There's a lot of late-night uh, talk show hosts mm-hmm. kind of all competing for the same market share. But I remember when I was growing up uh, and I was watching, you know, Conan O'Brien and, and all that, um, and what would happen sometimes is they'd have the main two guests, then the musical guest, the musical guests would go over time and the comedian would kind of, they would say, hey, sorry, uh, I know you, we gave you five minutes. Now you have three minutes. And they never had a problem course correcting because they didn't have this five minute, 20 minute, 30 minute set. They just had a series of small vignettes and small stories. Yeah. So um, my 
fascination with stand-up comedy. I mean, I, I like to laugh, but it was really about the fascination with, with storytelling. And so um, when I got the opportunity to, you know, get involved and do stand-up comedy, I was like, well, uh, why not just, why not just really jump headfirst and get really uncomfortable? And so uh, I had an opportunity, worked with, uh, with, with Zam. Uh, I was probably the worst student he ever had. Um, I mean, I say that hopefully he, he watches and laughs. Um, I think the end result was phenomenal. I mean, he was really, really pleased. Um, but I really had to get there my own way. <laughs> I was a very stubborn student. Um, but then, yeah, it ended up getting to uh, the Carolines on Broadway, did the set, you know, 20 minutes. 20 minutes is on comedy is your, first, is your first time. It went extremely well. And then from there, you know, they cut a couple minute, three or four minute sizzle reel from it with just, you know, stuff that was uh that was piece that was pg enough <laughs> for uh, for for social um not that any of it was super bad it was actually probably pg-13 throughout um and then from there one of my clients i believe sent that little clip to his vistage uh chair and he's like hey he's like this is this is a uh, our sales trainer great guy you might want to check this out and the vistage chair checked it out was like this is really interesting um I would be interested if he would be uh, willing to do sessions on storytelling for my Vistage groups. And so that kind of began the journey into carving out a little bit of a niche in storytelling, uh, storytelling for sales, for management, for leadership, for stories we tell ourselves. And then now I look back and a, 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 a good amount of my business does come from, from Vistage and other peer advisory groups like that. And that I told that I tie that all back to stand-up comedy. And then the one thing I'll add to that is I think, I don't think I would have viewed myself more as someone who's going to create content. Like, I don't think I would have done any of these little, uh, whether it's the role play roulette videos or the, you know, uh, Sam, their shout out videos or being on podcasts. I would don't, I don't know if I would have been letting this much of my personality out, which is I'm serious about business without taking myself too seriously. Uh, I, I don't think I would have been that comfortable in my own skin had I not taken the plunge to do something like that. So that's kind of how it all played out for me in my head. Yeah. Following the last 30 seconds of what you say, you don't know if you'd ever have put out the roulette kind of videos, not being yourself. You spoke a little bit about that. I can recognize that as well in myself. Um, but I want to know, is it the same reason I had do you have the same reason i looked up to the top three or four in the network the coils the john Russells, and thought every part of the working version of me has to be like these guys so i can get what they get and i can't afford to let parts of me that's not in them shine whatsoever so for the first couple of months if not year or two uh, i was just trying to mold myself into being one of the top guys in the network, which ultimately led to nowhere because they themselves are not trying to scope themselves into something. They just are themselves. Are you, were you the same? Oh yeah. Um, this is a true story. I, I, I told John Rosso this, uh, and he laughed. I mean, he was like, he's like, that's amazing. Um, so, um, <laughs> when I, when I was getting ready to do my first talk in front of a chamber of commerce or something, you know, however many years ago, uh, a little while ago now, um, 
And I obviously I had been in sales for a long time. I had success. I had built some companies. So I wasn't a novice, but it was my first time delivering a Sandler talk, right? Mm. I'd applied this content. Now I got to teach this content. So um, I did what a lot of people do. I went and watched every video that John Rosso had ever done and a couple other people. So I watched like one of his classic, like, you know, uh, executive briefing videos. And, um, and I kind of emulated almost every aspect to it. Well, actually, that's not true. I emulated every aspect to it and forgot to actually change the stories. Um, and so I remember at the beginning, um, you know, me being like, I spent, you know, prior to this, I spent 20 years as an executive for IBM. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait, no, wait a minute. No, no, I didn't. That's, that's, that's John. <laughs> Forgot to change the, change the variables. Uh, so, and then obviously like, I just kind of coasted past it. And people kind of like, I, you can see like, you know, it wasn't a massive group. It's like 12 people. And they're like, like you, you know, and I, I mean, I'm 38 now. So I was like, I was like, it's like, you've been, you were an executive when you were 13? <laughs> like, and, uh, I spent 20 years as an executive at IBM or whatever, you know, and then like, they're just like, and I was like, just, yeah, just uh, move right past that. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> so yeah, uh, 100%, I, I, I uh, early on uh, did exactly what you just said. And that was the example of that. Well, fast forward a couple of years that you're performing on Broadway. Where next? <laughs> Is that why you've retired? Because there is, like, you've 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 got to Broadway. No, no, no. I mean, I and I, and I, and I want to be. I mean, maybe this is the uh, the Persian in me where um, I, I I every time someone gives me a compliment, I have to like you know basically, you know, be very critical and kind of you know it's it's the imposter syndrome I guess that sometimes exists in in, in us, and I know I know I have some of that um, as well. No, I mean the the. I, I'm so excited that I got a chance to do the Carolines on Broadway show. It was yep. an amazing opportunity. Um, do I actually think that, you know, I'm going to go and become a stand-up comic or do something, you know, like that? Um, I, I, I would I would really doubt that. Um, that I would, uh, but as far as, like, kind of the what's, what's next piece, um, I think I, I definitely want to do more of that because I enjoy it. Um, I think it's obviously for, for every conceivable reason – the COVID situation has been terrible. Um, I will say that it's been extremely terrible for performing arts in general, whether it's your friends and families that own, uh, you know, bars and restaurants and nightclubs and music venues and all that. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there was a time and place we'd go out and do those things and hopefully that'll happen again soon. Um, so yeah, I, I would like to do it and I will be doing it again once we're able to. And I, I've done some virtual stuff um but there's something about just being out there on stage and being able to like walk around and riff with the crowd a little bit so i i definitely plan to do it again i wish i could tell you when but uh that's definitely on my on my on my radar for sure who's your favorite comedian that's a tough question uh right now or all time all time it's a tough question um i mean all time all time i mean richard Pryor. i would say um i will say that dave chappelle as the absolute best one hour of stand-up ever recorded, and that's the uh, Killing Them Softly um, set in Washington, D.C. This was, I guess, 2000. This was many years ago. That's probably the best one hour set. Um, I know, you know, I know it's uh, he's falling a little hard times right now, but, uh, I mean, Louis He's caught COVID, hasn't he? Uh, who? who uh, Dave uh, Chappelle, Chappelle. I think he's just caught COVID. Oh, I, oh, I, didn't, hear, I, I didn't hear about that. No, I mean, oh. he's... Uh, 
he is he is like in extremely he's he's in he's in way better shape now than he was then so maybe he'll be okay yeah but uh, what i was gonna say is i know i know i know louis ck has fallen on hard times right now and and all that i'm not condoning any of his behavior and all that but I, but i mean it's hard not to put him at the very very top i mean he's a genius too he's a, yeah. he is a, the term genius gets thrown around he's a genius um and then right now i will tell you uh a uh, gary goldman um is amazing and and one of the things i i love the most about gary goldman and for those who i mean all you have to do is go to get youtube and like search gary goldman um state abbreviations uh or gary goldman role play or um it's it's so hard to do what he does because he is extremely extremely hilarious brilliant storyteller and i don't know if i've ever heard him curse before <laughs> he's it's really hard to be as funny as he is while actually being a clean comedian um which is yeah. really impressive yeah you've you you you've referenced your uh roots a number of times uh, throughout this sporadic interview that has had no start Miller end, which is the opposite of storytelling. But I uh, kick myself if I didn't ask you in one of your previous talks, you mentioned your mother and you said that your mother has told you the hardest thing in life is having choices. And it's amazing what wow. you can do when you have no choices. And I yes. have watched, I've looked at a number of the immigrant stories. I I lived in Australia for a year and I and it was then that opened my eyes to it. And I've noticed that very few will work as hard as immigrants when they come in. They've got nothing to lose. Gary Vaynerchuk, someone that we all know, his parents are from Belarus. And when they came in, their work ethic, and that it's just unmatched, un, unrivaled on any level comparison to someone who lives in the area. Why do you think that is? And are you able to expand a bit on what your mother said around the hardest thing in life is having choices? I'll give it a shot. Um, I, I think, uh, and, and by the way, I, I, I don't, um, I mean, I commend you on your questions and your, and your, and your research. Uh, I, I hope this, I mean, this interview, I'm, I'm loving it. I, I hope, I hope you are as well, because this is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I also will say that uh, as a quick aside, um, I mean, yeah, I'm fascinated with storytelling. I'm not saying I'm the best storyteller ever, but I, I like it a lot. Um, I also think that sometimes the roundabout aspect of storytelling is effective. You know, like the like the Quentin Tarantino. As long as you can land the plane and do callbacks, I think it can be effective because it keeps the attention. So you actually think about Quentin Tarantino is probably one of the best storytellers in a either non-linear or a linear storytelling structure where you might be starting at the end and then you go back and different perspectives and all that. So I actually think as long as, as there's some degree of structure to it, it can be effective. Um, now, now to your question, again, great, great, great question. Uh, I don't know if I can speak to the, to the, to whether or not uh, immigrants uh, work harder, have a, have a work at work ethic that exceeds everyone else. I, I, I think that is, is, is case by case. Uh, I, I'm not anywhere able to speak to that. What I will tell you um, is there is research that shows there's a there's a a um, disproportionate amount of immigrants who do become entrepreneurs, um, and and that that then there is research to show that. And by the way, entrepreneur could be anything. By the way, uh, it, uh, someone who's who uh, emigrates and and comes here and then they open you know a ton of of franchise restaurants or they they uh, they open a bunch of um, 
of, of, of uh, you know, laundry mats or, or dry cleaners or, 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 you know, whatever it is, gas stations. I mean, people don't actually realize that, that those are business owners uh, being entrepreneurial. And so there is actually research to show that, and, and again, they, they speculate as to why some people say, well, it, you know, if it took so, if there were so many perils along the journey to even get here in the first place, many people risking their lives, you know, maybe getting, getting, you know, killed in the process. It's almost like they can get here and obviously just, well, I mean, geez, uh, I survived that. How scary can this possibly be? I literally just survived almost dying. Um, now, all that put aside because I'm not I'm not an authority or expert. For my mother's point, and it stuck with me. So my mom, um, you know, uh, again, I'm first generation, or I don't know if she's first generation. I was the first one born in, in the United States, um, and, and I was born in the United States. You know, a mere weeks after my mother uh, was able was able to escape uh, Iran, and there's a whole story behind it. And my sister is actually writing a book on it and it's it's like a hollywood movie with all kinds of with uh everything from from luck to betrayal to tragedy to death to you know i mean family and and it's uh, yeah so it's a pretty remarkable a uh, story that my sister is writing and it's i guess it's my story but it's my my mother's story so ultimately when she uh got here um or i guess re got here because she wasn't she was an american citizen went to uh school at university of california berkeley uh, and then went back to Iran to get involved in the political movement during the ousting the Shah. So when she was able to come back to the country, having lost everything, uh, including uh, her husband, my father, in the process, uh, she had to raise two children, um, you know, by herself, single mother. Um, I'm uh, I was you know just born. I was an infant. Um, my sister is a uh, you know, just about three years older than me, and so she didn't really have a choice. So she, and she, uh, she just found what she was able to do to provide for her family. And so she began working as an editor and then she worked hard and then was promoted, promoted, then transferred jobs. And before you knew it, she, when she retired, you know, was, was uh, fairly high up in the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. And it, it was really, it wasn't like she said, this is the vision. She just didn't have a lot of choices. And so she found what she could do to provide for her family and just worked, you know, her tail off to be able to ride. Um, no, and I think the context that she was telling it to me in, and it's not that choices are bad. I think we we all want for our family to have options. I think what she meant is when people have so many options, it can be difficult. It's hard to make a decision. Um, I mean, she never had to think about like a gap year, you know, am I going to, am I going to travel Europe for six months after, you know, college? Like, no, you're going to get a job. So, um, what she would say to me and is, is, you know, sometimes the hardest thing in life is having all these choices. Um, now I, I don't necessarily know from my perspective, whether it, it's, it's stuck with me. I don't know how much that's influenced me in my journey because I, I, I have, kind of made different choices and, and changes because I've been able to. But I think the idea, the principle is, a, is an important one. There are people who they know when they're eight years old, I'm going to be a neurologist. Yeah. And they just go, they, they tease, they score high, they go to a great school, they, they graduate high, they do their MCATs, they, go to, like, they, they just know what they're going to be and they never deviate from it. 
And uh, I think maybe there are, actually, maybe it was my mom's subtle way of saying, go become a doctor. Uh, I'm jealous of those people. I'm not going to lie. In uh, 2015, not long ago, I emigrated to Australia for a year and just poured beer for a whole year because I had no idea what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, actually, it actually sounds awesome, by the way. Your, the story of your parents is fascinating. Uh, uh, I already have my ears hurt up to want to know more about the, the story, but your sister's writing a book, so we'll leave that for your, for your sister to tell. Your parents lived a different life than you did, but can you tell me some of the lessons that your mom passed down to you that have stuck with you to this day? Because you did leave the if you want to call it the corporate rat race or leave the benefits of the corporate world behind, that's not easy to do. Um, and you did go out there and do stand-up comedy and get out of your comfort zone. Again, that's not easy to do. I know we don't have enough time to talk about a little bit about storytelling, but I know that you have a video coming out with my father. I'm assuming that's something to do with storytelling, but I'd love to know what's, what I'm trying to say is a lot of what you've done is not the norm. And I'm sure some of what your mother passed down to you has impacted you and led you here to hear what you are today. So what are some of the lessons that you think she's passed down to you? Man, you're like, like a, like a, like a and, and, and not only that, I noticed you. because I think the stats are, and I could be completely off here, you know, 60% of the stats are made up. So this might be fun to that category, but like 90% of Americans don't have a passport yet. You, Spent, you spent a year in the London, London School of Economics, so you've also been abroad as well. So your life compared to others has been wildly different. So I'd love to know what do you think some of the lessons she's passed down to you? Hard work might be one of them. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I appreciate and commend your curiosity. Thanks for these great questions. Um, uh, and it's funny, I mean, yeah, I, I, I did get a master's from the London School of Economics, um, pro- probably in a weird way of pleasing my mother and my family. <laughs> You know, um, but, uh, but no, I, I, I think, um, I mean, yeah, there's a, tons of lessons. Now, I, again, that, I, I don't want to get, uh, I don't want to get, well, it's not a matter of getting emotional. It's a matter of, I don't want to bum anyone out, but yeah, my, my mother, unfortunately died young. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, she, she had got ovarian cancer and passed away and nothing in life is fair, but that was really unfair. Um, and, and it was unfair because, you know, it's, it's, she had basically spent her entire life raising my sister and me. She'd work really, really hard. And then literally, as soon as she was uh, on the cusp of maybe being able to do something for herself, she, you know, is diagnosed with ovarian cancer, uh, yeah. suffers, you know, suffers for, for many years and then, and then dies at, at 62 years old, um, having spent six years, uh, you know, pretty much almost constantly in pain with a little bit of, of remissions throughout. And it just didn't seem fair. Um, it's never fair to lose anyone, but it's like, it finally was like her time uh, and then, and then that was unfortunately not the way it went. So, um, but what I'll tell you is, uh, but here's why I bring this up. Um, my mother, uh, I mean, I remember this, even, even when she was, uh, you know, when it was terminal and she had four months left to live, I've never seen anyone enjoy an ice cream bar as much as she does. And she would say, I would like, she had this particular Hagen dazs and she said, Nima, would you you know what I want, go to the store and get me a Haagen-Dazs. And it was the Haagen-Dazs uh, vanilla with the chocolate kind of like uh, shell on the outside, the like Haagen-Dazs uh, uh, like, uh, bar there. And she would basically like sit there like in her like wheelchair eating a Haagen-Dazs bar. And she'd look at me and say, ah, oh, what else do you want from life? 
Um, and that was kind of like her, 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 her mantra is, is, uh, is, is gratitude, appreciation. But I mean, she could enjoy a Haagen-Dazs bar or enjoy a hot dog from like a New York city street vendor and just think it's like the most delicious thing in the world. And in that moment, it probably was, uh, for her. So I think, uh, I, I think the lessons and, and you think there's so many there, but, but I think, I think that's probably the biggest one is, I mean, even the actual affirmation, like, like what else do you want from life? And she would say that like sitting outside in her garden with the sun. I mean, it's, it's, it, it did not matter. It's like, you know, oh man, the sun's shining. Ah, what else do you want from life? And, and I think it was that, uh, that bit of, and, and I, and I, and I really, and I'm nowhere near on her level. I, 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 I wish, and I, I, and I strive to have that level of, of gratitude and of just positivity that, 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 that she had. Um, and I, and I, and that, and it's part of my affirmation is to really uh, become, become that way through behavior. But yeah, that's probably the biggest one that I've learned from hers is one of gratitude and simplicity. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Uh, it, it's a solid one. Look, uh, not got long left, but uh, I was hiking a mountain a while ago, uh, and I was with some friends, and it was in, in this mountain was was rather difficult, and it got more difficult as we got up the mountain. And at one point in the mountain, you're on your hands and knees climbing the last maybe like half a mile of the mountain, and at particular points, not gonna lie, we had been drinking heavy the night before, but at particular points, you saw friends drop off. I'm happy at this point. The view here is pretty slick. I'm going to open up my kind of monster, clear the hangover. I'm not going any further. And they were content. But there was others that just wanted to get to the top. They didn't want to stop. They didn't want to stop until they got to the top. I imagine if you were on that mountain with me, you'd be one of the people that made it to the top of the mountain. You... Uh, Okay, maybe not the top of the mountain if you were extremely hungover, but I say in life, you push through uh, your comfort zone. So I want to know, what's next? What are you doing next to get out of your comfort zone? Um, I mean, literally next. And, yeah. and, 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 I, th- and I think Matt Middleton's going to get mad at me because I'm actually technically late right now. Uh, I don't mean late because of the interview, but I'm supposed to be doing it first thing in the morning. Um, the, I'm literally going to be journaling and meditating next. Um, and, and I know that wasn't really entirely a question, but I think it actually is the right answer is um, – uh, about, well, 66 days ago, exactly. Um, uh, Matt Nettleton shared that he had been journaling for 200 consecutive days at that point in time. Wow. And I was like, and I, and I, and I had journaled before, uh, you know, kind of sporadically and I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. Uh, and then we've added meditation to it as well. So, um, and you know, for anyone who's, whether it's atomic habits or, you know, uh, or, or just habit building in general, there's there's a power in, habit stacking and there's a power in 66 days i think is actually some people view as a pretty as a milestone if you could do something for that long then you've built a habit so um i I would say in the literal sense as soon as they sign off i'm gonna be doing my my page of journaling and then i'm gonna be doing my 10 minutes or whatever the the session is today on meditation um and i'm gonna be doing those two things Forever, it's weird. I, I set the goal for 365 consecutive days, but what I've realized is, it, it almost doesn't matter anymore. The goal is important, but now that I've done it for so long, I, even if I get to 365, I don't think I'm gonna like say, okay, I'm done with that. It's just something that I do. Um, so as far as like the what's next, 
I think it's going to be more of that. Uh, I don't mean meditation and journaling, but it's going to be more of building the kinds of habits that intentionally will, 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 we will, will fulfill me. And, and some of them are like recording a podcast with you, which I love this. Thank you so much for the opportunity or my own videos. There's like a, a scheduling aspect to it. Others are just the things that we do for ourselves to, you know, calm the monkey mind. And so I would say what's next for me is a lot more of that, a lot more of, of intentional habit building to uh, help me, help me, <laughs> just help me. <laughs> awesome. Um, I'll, I'll put a graphic there. Big help me on the screen at that particular yeah, point. Help me. This interview bounced all over the place. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, but one of the things I'd love to do is get you back on to focus specifically on lead gen and scaling your business. I know that the Wolfpack is getting back together middle or beginning of February. And I'm sure you'll have more than 6,000 over a six week period this time. Um, we didn't touch on or have any structure to the topics of lead gen and scaling the business. I know you're coming up to six years in your business and you've probably got a lot to tell there from the angle of storytelling and lead gen. So I'd love to have you back on to do a more structured podcast, but thank you for being my guest today in what has been my favorite podcast so far. Well, I, I, I've loved it. Be very kind. I mean, and, and, and I, hopefully it's a good thing that we went all over the place. I, I, I thought it was, but yeah, it would be an honor to come back on and, and talk about lead gen and, and all that as well. But thank you so much. This has been a blast. Awesome. If people want to get in touch with you to learn more or to watch your stand-up comedy, where can they get in touch with you? Uh, I, the nice thing about having an, a fairly unique name is there's not a lot of Nima Semnani's running around out there. So, uh, so on LinkedIn, then obviously Nima, N-E-M-A, Semnani, S-E-M-N-A-N-I, and then uh, at Sandler in Nova, Sandler in N-O-V-A, Sandler in Nova across pretty much all the social platforms, um, including uh, including YouTube uh, as well. So not a ton of clips on the video, but at least there's one that I know of. <laughs> well, look, I'll leave it there. I'll let you go to meditate and journal, and uh, we'll we'll talk again in uh, hopefully the near future. I love that, man. Thank you so much. I love this. No worries, man. Likewise. Take care, man.